This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Today on the emdocs podcast, we're going to be looking at part two in misconceptions in heart failure, and today we're focusing on management. Before we dive into these misconceptions, we need to make a distinction. There are several different varieties of heart failure. There's scape or sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema, and there's several others, the most common being that patient who presents with a gradual onset of worsening fluid overload and systemic congestion. Scape patients will present with flash pulmonary edema. They'll be hypertensive, but they won't really have any evidence of systemic congestion. The patient will be critically ill, and the key physiologic problem here is excessive afterload that causes fluid shift into the lungs. These patients are going to be hypertensive, and the key interventions are going to be non-invasive positive pressure ventilation and nitroglycerin. The other big subset of heart failure patients that we're going to see in the emergency department are those who present with systemic fluid overload. These patients may present with ascites, peripheral edema, and they may also have pulmonary edema. However, this is more of a fluid overload state. These patients can be hypotensive, normotensive, or hypertensive. The onset is typically gradual over days. The treatment here is going to be volume removal either through diuresis or dialysis. Now, scape and fluid overload aren't mutually exclusive. For example, some patients can have scape superimposed upon that fluid overload state. Now, let's get into our misconceptions. Our first misconception is that diuretics are the mainstay of therapy in all cases of acute heart failure. Diuretics are a key component in heart failure therapy, in acute decompensation, and in patients for chronic therapy. They're also a major factor in guidelines. The AHA and ACC international guidelines state diuretics are first-line medications in the management of heart failure with the goal of improving congestion and obtaining euvolemia at the lowest dose possible. Guidelines usually recommend an IV dose that's equal or greater than the patient's daily maintenance dose. ASEP provides a level B recommendation stating to treat patients with moderate to severe pulmonary edema resulting from heart failure with furosemide in combination with nitrate therapy. They have a level C recommendation that states aggressive direct monotherapy is unlikely to prevent the need for intubation compared with aggressive nitrate monotherapy. They also state that diuretics should be administered with caution because they can worsen renal function. The most common diuretics that we have available include furosemide, torsemide, and bumetanide. Furosemide is primarily eliminated through the kidneys, while bumetanide and torsemide primarily undergo hepatic elimination. IV administration is the recommended route because this provides the greatest bioavailability, allowing for diuresis within 30 to 60 minutes. The problem with diuretics for all, though, is that acute heart failure really varies and it's not just one distinct entity. Patients can have differences in hemodynamic status and the degree of systemic versus pulmonary congestion. In patients who are systemically overloaded, diuretics can improve systemic congestion. But in those patients who present with scape, diuretics are more complicated with better options available. This brings us to our first pearl. In acute pulmonary edema with hypertension, nitroglycerin and non-invasive positive pressure ventilation are the first-line therapies before diuresis. The literature suggests that in patients with acute pulmonary edema, they may have no significant increase in dry weight during the exacerbation. Fluid shifts from other compartments, such as the splanchnic circulation, into the pulmonary circulation because of increased afterload, which may result in pulmonary edema. 
In SCAPE, patients who receive furosemide might have decreased LV function, increased LV filling pressures, and increased systemic vascular resistance through activation of the neurohormonal system. They can also have decreased GFR, potentially even further decreasing diuresis. In this setting, harm might be the result of diuretic therapy if the patient is not truly volume overloaded. Diuretics are helpful in those patients who have systemic congestion from true volume overload with signs and symptoms like ascites and extensive peripheral edema that accumulates over time. However, in patients with scape and little to no evidence of systemic congestion, nitroglycerin and non-invasive positive pressure ventilation are your go-to treatments. These measures improve the work of breathing, decrease preload, and can decrease afterload. Non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is associated with a reduced need for intubation with a number needed to treat of 8 and even mortality with a number needed to treat of 13. Our next pearl is that there are a variety of diuretic strategies that can be used in patients with systemic congestion, and ultrafiltration might improve diuresis. IV diuretics possess relatively short half-lives, and doses might need to be repeated to target adequate urine output in patients with systemic congestion. Guidelines recommend an initial IV dose equivalent or greater than their home dose given bolus or as a continuous infusion. If this doesn't improve symptoms, then the dose of loop diuretic can be increased or a second diuretic can be added like a thiazide. Bolus versus continuous infusion of a diuretic is controversial. There are several studies looking at this. The dose trial evaluated low-dose continuous infusion, high-dose continuous infusion, low-dose bolus versus high-dose bolus. The trial found that high-dose loop diuretics might improve symptoms but increase serum creatinine, while continuous versus intermittent boluses didn't really provide any clinically significant difference. If diuresis with IV loop diuretics fails, then ultrafiltration is an alternative method that can reduce further congestion in patients with hypervolemia. Literature suggests greater net weight and fluid loss with ultrafiltration compared to standard diuretic therapy, but there's no impact on mortality. Our second misconception is that the safest means of providing nitroglycerin IV is to begin with small doses and then titrate to the release of symptoms to ensure patient safety in those with pulmonary edema. Nitrates are a key element of our treatment in patients with heart failure. These cause venous and arterial vasodilation, they reduce biventricular filling pressures, systemic arterial blood pressures, and pulmonary vascular resistance. Nitroglycerin can also improve coronary blood flow and it reduces myocardial ischemia. The greatest benefit of nitrates is in those with pulmonary edema because of the nitrates' effects on preload and fluid redistribution. ACIP provides a level B recommendation stating to administer IV nitrate therapy to patients with acute heart failure and associated dyspnea. Nitroglycerin is contraindicated in patients with hypotension and those with recent use of phosphodiesterase inhibitors. Also, there are some side effects like headaches that can occur. Our next pearl is looking at the dosing of nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin IV can be provided safely in high doses, including bolus or infusion, which will rapidly relieve symptoms. Several studies have looked at high-dose IV nitroglycerin, whether through bolus or infusion. A 2007 open-label study found that nitroglycerin 2 mg every 3 minutes was associated with reduced intubation and need for bi-level positive pressure ventilation, as well as ICU admission. A 2017 retrospective observational cohort study found that nitroglycerin boluses between 500 to 2,000 micrograms provided every 3 to 5 minutes decrease ICU admission. A more recent 2021 study included patients with SCAPE. Patients were given non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, 
as well as bolus IV nitroglycerin dosing, followed by an IV continuous infusion. The bolus dose was based on patients presenting blood pressure. This study of 25 patients found 11 of those patients had resolution of symptoms at 3 hours, while the remaining 13 patients had symptom resolution within 6 hours. 24 of the 25 patients were actually discharged from the ED after a brief period of observation. When it comes to harms, there were no episodes of hypotension after the bolus dose of nitroglycerin. Two patients had transient hypotension during the nitroglycerin infusion that improved with small fluid bolus and stopping the nitroglycerin drip. With this literature, administering nitroglycerin IV aggressively at higher doses, whether bolus or infusion, is safe and might be associated with a reduced need for intubation and need for ICU admission. So with this information, how do you go about dosing nitroglycerin in patients with SCAPE? Well, the dose required is much higher than what we're used to for patients with anginal chest pain. This is because higher doses of nitroglycerin are required to achieve arterial vasodilation. Lower doses achieve venodilation. For that initial loading dose of nitroglycerin, start with an initial dose of 1,000 to 2,000 micrograms. Push this slowly over two minutes. The other option is to provide a nitroglycerin infusion at 400 to 800 micrograms per minute for two and a half minutes. Both of these are roughly equivalent. The main risk is hypotension. However, if you've secured the diagnosis of SCAPE, this is very unlikely because these patients have such profound vasoconstriction. Once you've provided that bolus, your next step is to provide an infusion of about 100 to 300 micrograms per minute. If blood pressure isn't controlled, you might need to up-titrate your nitroglycerin infusion very aggressively. You might need high doses like 800 micrograms per minute for a limited period of time to break that cycle of progressive hypertension. If hypertension continues, you might need to provide nicardipine, clavidipine, or an ACE inhibitor. You can also provide sublingual nitroglycerin. This can be used if a patient experiences escape in a location where you're unable to provide IV nitroglycerin or that patient who presents with pulmonary edema, but it's kind of gradual onset and they present with other signs of systemic fluid overload. In that patient who presents with escape, three to five sublingual 400 microgram tablets of nitroglycerin every five minutes is reasonable. For that patient who presents with pulmonary edema, but they're not critically ill and they have evidence of systemic congestion, then you can give them one to two sublingual tablets. Our third misconception is that morphine is safe in acute heart failure and should be provided to the majority of patients. Originally, morphine was a key component of therapy in cardiac conditions, including heart failure. It reportedly reduced preload and heart rate and provided anxiolysis. It predominantly did this through its effects on the CNS. Most of these considerations come from several older trials where they looked at dogs, some patients with pulmonary edema, and some patients with acute myocardial infarction. There's even trials on cats looking at a dose-dependent vasodilation in pulmonary vessels with morphine. Guidelines vary in recommendations concerning morphine. The European Society of Cardiology used to support the use of opioids in heart failure, stating morphine 4 to 8 milligrams should be considered if the patient has severe anxiety with pulmonary edema. However, there are multiple issues with morphine, and our next pearl is that morphine may be associated with harm in acute heart failure and does not improve prognosis. Evidence suggests morphine is associated with worse outcomes when compared to patients who don't receive opioids. Morphine can induce myocardial depression, decrease heart rate, cardiac output, and even worse, it can cause respiratory depression. This effect is definitely dose-dependent with opioids decreasing tidal volume and respiratory rate. There are several retrospective observational studies. 
Most of these studies suggest that morphine is associated with increased need for mechanical ventilation, greater length of stay, increased requirement for ICU, and higher risk-adjusted mortality. However, the problem with these observational retrospective studies is that they suffer from extensive confounding factors. For example, morphine may have been given more frequently to patients with more severe heart failure. Also, determining if morphine was actually associated with increased intubation versus use just as a sedative after intubation is really difficult to determine. Though there are some confounders, we have many other options to improve preload and afterload in pulmonary edema and acute heart failure, like non-invasive positive pressure ventilation and nitroglycerin. Opioids may be useful in a select group of patients when they're integrated into an organized treatment strategy and they're not alone. Fentanyl is probably the best agent if you have to use an opioid as a rapid onset of action, which allows it to be titrated. It also doesn't cause a histamine release, making it less likely to cause nausea and vomiting. So when should you consider using fentanyl? Well, the first indication is that patient who is unable to tolerate the CPAP or BiPAP mask. Fentanyl can directly reduce air hunger, and this is probably one of the underlying problems. It's also helpful in that patient with extreme dyspnea or anxiety. Low-dose fentanyl here can be reasonable to promote comfort and reduce that anxiety. However, keep in mind that fentanyl should never be used alone as management for air hunger. It should only serve as an adjunctive agent in combination with your CPAP or BiPAP and nitrates. Our final misconception is that in patients with cardiogenic shock and a systolic blood pressure of less than 100, dopamine is the most beneficial medication to improve peripheral perfusion. Prior recommendations advise dopamine for systolic blood pressure of 70 to 100 with norepinephrine reserved for those with a systolic pressure of less than 70. However, recent literature suggests that dopamine may be associated with greater risk of adverse events. The SOAP2 trial evaluated patients with general shock with one subset including cardiogenic shock. Results suggest norepinephrine is associated with improved outcomes including reduced risk of mortality and risk of dysrhythmia at 28 days when it's compared to dopamine. Your final pearl is that norepinephrine should be used over dopamine in cardiogenic shock with hypotension. Guidelines now recommend norepinephrine as a medication to reach target mean arterial pressure rather than dopamine. Dopamine has increased risk of dysrhythmias and it causes vasoconstriction at higher doses, which may reduce end organ perfusion. Norepinephrine is associated with improved outcomes, including lower mortality and lower risk of dysrhythmia. Let's wrap this up. Our first big takeaway is that SCAPE needs to be differentiated from other types of heart failure. Our first misconception was that diuretics should be used in all patients with heart failure. Diuretics can be helpful in those patients with systemic fluid overload, but in the initial stages of treating that patient with SCAPE, your first-line therapies are going to be non-invasive positive pressure ventilation and nitroglycerin. The second pearl is that there are a variety of diuretic strategies that can be used in patients with systemic congestion and ultrafiltration may improve diuresis in patients who are refractory to IV diuretics. The next misconception was that you should provide nitroglycerin in small doses and titrate to the relief of symptoms to ensure patient safety in those with pulmonary edema. Nitroglycerin can be provided safely in high doses, including bolus or infusion, which will rapidly relieve symptoms. The next misconception was that morphine is safe in acute heart failure and should be provided to most patients with acute heart failure exacerbation. However, morphine is associated with harm and it does not improve prognosis. Our final misconception is that in patients with cardiogenic shock and a systolic blood pressure of less than 100, 
dopamine should be your first-line vasopressor. Norepinephrine should be used over dopamine in patients with cardiogenic shock and hypotension. This reduces mortality and the risk of dysrhythmias. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.